0: Welcome back to the Church Society podcast. Uh, It's been a little while and we apologise to those of you who are regular listeners who've been wondering if the podcast would ever return. We are back and we are excited uh, about it. I just wanted to let you know that our plans uh, for the uh, future of the podcast are that we're going to work in... Uh, seasons. So we're planning a 10-week season this autumn uh, and then we'll have a little break and we'll be back in the spring with another season of episodes. I'm uh, Ros Clark, I'm the Associate Director of Church Society and uh, today I am chatting uh, with Lee Gatiss, Lee Gatiss, Director of Church Society and uh, Editor of Church Society's latest publication. Uh, I say it's a a latest publication, it is a new book but it's not that new is it Lee? Tell us how, how new or not this book is.
1: Well, uh, the the majority of the text in the book comes from fifteen forty seven, Bros. Right. <laughs> so it's a little bit older than uh, than some modern new books might be.
0: And and you've not written this book from scratch, have you? Tell us what it is and um, and where it's come from.
1: Uh, it's called the first book of homilies, the Church of England's modern, uh, the Church of England's official sermons in modern English. Uh, so it is. It's uh, an official. Church of England sort of text. It's one of our formularies like the 39 Articles and the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, but I've taken the 1547 original publication and I've modernised it so that a modern reader can easily pick it up and have a look at it and read it and make sense of it.
0: And and just tell me, I mean, why, why did it need modernising? I mean, most of us can manage a sort of the and a thou here and there. (laughs) When you say you've modernised it, how much work has that entailed and and what have you done to the text?
1: Yes. Um, Well, yeah, I have taken out all the these and thys and thous and just made that into ordinary speech that we would use today so it's less of an effort for people i know that some people are used to reading 16th and 17th century english but most people are not um and so i've changed that into more understandable english but i've modernized various archaic obscure or obsolete words i mean who who says heretofore or for as much or uh, minished
0: What was that last one? Minished. Okay, I don't say that very much.
1: And we don't really, we don't in modern speak talk about remission of sins either or remission of debt. We talk about Mm. cancellation of debt. Uh, so I, I've changed the word remission into cancellation, which might be a controversial one for some, uh, but that's just what we talk about. So it's um, we t- think of it as a, a religious word, remission of sins, but it's just the word for cancelling a debt.
0: Yeah. So people in the 16th century who owed something to a you know tradesperson or whatever, yes, and that debt somehow got cancelled, they would have talked about the debt being remitted. Yes. But yes. but these days you you. You know, electricity company never remits your debt, do they? No, or
1: they don't. I, they don't. I, uh, they full stop. They... they don't remit your debt. But <laughs> uh, yes, they wouldn't talk about it that way.
0: Tell me about diminished. What does it mean to diminish? Well, I
1: think it means diminished. Oh,
0: okay. Uh,
1: That's right. Of so you're actually just updating the word a bit. There. There are other things like. Um, Uh, it talks a bit about heathens, which I've just changed to unbelievers, which I think is a little bit more um, modern. And the word miserable, in the 16th century, the word miserable didn't mean, oh, woe is me, I feel really down in the dumps. It isn't about being Eeyore. Um, It can mean that, but it more often in the homilies means pitiable. um, It's to do with with having mercy or requiring mercy um, and... That you are in a pitiable state and require saving rather than you feel unhappy and you need a bar of chocolate and a bath or yeah. something like that. So, so
0: miserable sinners might actually be quite jolly people.
1: Yes. Yes, exactly. But they are sinners who are in a pitiable state yeah. before God. There are other words as well. I mean, things like um the word inconvenience oh, is yeah. used in the homilies, but it's used in three different ways. It can mean Inconvenience uh, <laughs> or inconvenient in the way that we use it. Something's that's not very convenient. I can't really record this podcast at the moment. It's an inconvenient time. So it can be used that way. Um, but it can also be used to mean inappropriate or not fitting
0: mm. or,
1: or even impro- impropriety. So it talks at one point about um, um, in the homily against contention and brawling how we go from hot words to further inconvenience and it doesn't just mean you know we we turn from really nasty words to each other to oh oh this is a little bit inconvenient for me to have this debate right now no it means we turn from hot words against each other to some kind of improper behavior so i've just changed that so that it makes more sense Um, in our context. I have a copy of the complete Oxford English Dictionary with all the historical meanings of words and so I've had that open quite a lot to make sure that what the word meant then is translated into what we would understand properly today and that sort of that sort of clarification. I've tried not to mangle the text and it's not a sort of modern paraphrase in street language. I haven't done that it's a modernisation that's tried to be careful and sympathetic and faithful to the original. Uh, but just so that a modern reader can understand it.
0: Brilliant. And so these were the official uh, sermons of the Church of England, as you say, published in 1547. Why were they published? Why did they need to be any official sermons? Couldn't people just you know, write their own sermons like they do today? Were they a bit lazy?
1: Well, some of them were. That's the problem. At the start of the Reformation, of course, there's this spiritual pastoral crisis um, because many of the local parish clergy may well have been quite ignorant and uneducated um, about the faith. Mm. They they didn't know who wrote the Lord's Prayer or what the names of the four Gospels were. And so how are these people supposed to teach the faith of the Reformation? Mm. And the homilies were written to help them to do that by providing words that they could preach, or if they were able to preach, give them a template for the sorts of things they could preach. Uh, It's meant as a sort of temporary measure, really, to start with, while better training is put in place to train up preachers. And the training did improve throughout the 16th century. Um, But but even then, the homilies remain as a template, a resource, and a sort of touchstone of doctrinal orthodoxy, for ministers in the church, even if they weren't necessarily going to read them out word for word every week, which some still did into the 17th, 18th centuries.
0: Okay, so it wasn't just, here's here's how you preach a sermon, but also here's what we believe as a church. They're not um, expository sermons, are they? In the, the way that perhaps many of us are used to on a Sunday morning, it's not going through passages in the Bible word by word or verse by verse. What What is the yes. sort of content that you get in these homilies.
1: Yeah, that's right. So the, it's more, it's not lectionary preaching. It's not taking um, passages from the Bible and expounding those um, as such. It is topical preaching. Right. Um, so uh, they, they start really by looking at the, um, the topic of scripture. And they show us that the way to know God and what he wants from us is not to look to Rome or to any human authority for some sort of infallible guidance, but to go back to the scriptures, the food of the soul, they call it. (laughs) Um, And so they talk about the scriptures and then it talks about sin and tell us that we are more lost and sinful than we could ever imagine. And then in the next homily, that we are more loved by a merciful God than we can ever dream. Uh, In the homily on salvation, only Christ can save us, says Grandma uh, in his sermon on salvation. And he does that by shedding his most precious blood. He made a sacrifice and satisfaction. He made amends to his father for our sins to satisfy the wrath and indignation he had against us for them. Or, you know, as the modern hymn says, on the cross as Jesus died the wrath of God was satisfied and that's the, what the cross is preached in all its fullness and uh, and satisfaction in, in the homily and then a- after we've had the homily on justification by grace alone through faith alone which they're very clear is not some new invention it's a very old uh, sort of universal catholic doctrine it goes on to talking about the daily life of faith and hope and love, which uh, a justified sinner is delighted to lead.
0: So a sort of um, primer for basic Christian doctrine and then, as you say, basic Christian living. Yes. Um, one of the things I was interested to, to discover that I don't think I really knew before, Cranmer himself didn't write all the homilies, did he? He sort of gathers together some some from other people that he trusted and knew and Um, it's almost like an anthology of sermons is that right?
1: Yes that's right Um, we don't know who the authors of every one of the homilies um, were we do know that Cranmer wrote um, the one on scripture and the one on salvation Uh, we know that a man called John Harpsfield wrote the one on sin uh, that uh, Bishop Bonner Wrote one on love, charity, as they called it in those days. Another word, which I've updated a bit, because charity doesn't mean um, today what it meant then. It means love, you know, like in one Corinthians thirteen. Um, so we and Thomas Beacon um, wrote uh, the the sermon on sexual sin and adultery. Okay,
0: well, we'll Um, maybe talk about that in a moment. I just wanted to ask you, one of the other things that that you get uh, in this book, as well as the updated uh, English to make it easier to read, you've put a lot of work into footnotes. Now, I know some people judge the quality of a book by the number of footnotes it (laughs) contains um but it's not just a, a sort of sales ploy is it say look here's a book with lots and lots of footnotes in it what what were you trying to do with all of those um references and things that that you've added into this version
1: Yes. It's not an academic tome or a critical edition. So if you're after the real, you know, nerd fest, if you're a real Angli nerd, uh, an Anglican nerd, then you'll want to get some critical edition um, by Bond or Bray or someone like that. Um, What I have done is, though, is added footnotes to tell you who a person is when they're quoted. So if it talks about St. Augustine or Chrysostom, I've got a little note telling you who that is and there's a glossary at the end of all those people. And just a reference to where you might find the quote that's been quoted um, mm. or the teaching that's been talked about by Oregon or Theophylact or whoever that is, It's just to aid the modern reader who may not be familiar with who all these people are.
0: So you've done all our Googling for us, is, is what you're saying. Excellent. Exactly.
1: And I've checked all that stuff with the critical editions and with the, the original Latin and Greek texts of uh, the fathers and stuff like that to make sure that the, if you really do want to nerd out, geek out and find those things, you can find it in Patrologia Latina or wherever.
0: Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, that sounds excellent. Um, uh, we're going to take a little pause here for what I like to think of as our commercial break. Uh, but we will be back in a minute to hear uh, about why these homilies uh, from the 16th century are still relevant and important for the Church of England uh, and Christians today. nearly a year since the church of england launched their living in love and faith resources and asked churches and uh, individuals to engage with them and send in their responses those responses will begin to be assessed from the beginning of november and we would love to encourage you uh, to send in as many responses as you can people can uh, fill out the survey Uh, they don't have to have taken the whole course they may have watched some of the videos they may have read some of the content on the webpage, uh, but also we'd love you to be sending in creative responses and to help with that we have a number of resources at churchsociety.org In particular, I want to draw your attention to two colouring pages that you can download. These are suitable uh, even for young children to use, but certainly for teenagers and adults. You might want to encourage your whole youth group or your whole Sunday school to colour them in and submit photos of their work. Perhaps encourage some of the older ones to talk about their own response to living in love and faith and what the Bible teaches about sex and sexuality. The posters use the phrase true love loves truth, which is a thing that even the youngest children can understand, uh, that it's not loving when you lie to somebody and that God who loves us above all things does not lie to us, that we find the truth that he teaches us in his word and that's how we know he loves us. So please do go and have a look at all the Living in Love and Faith resources on the Church Society website. There are videos introducing the process. There are courses helping to teach your congregation about some of these issues. And there are various suggestions for how you might respond. So uh, we've heard, Lee, about all the work that you've done. You've made these very uh, readable for us. You've done all the background work so that we can find out all the people that are referred to and the quotes that are made and so on. Um, And we've said it's a a sort of primer of basic Christian doctrine and basic Christian living. Life was really Mm. different in the 16th century, wasn't it, from the 21st century in, in all kinds of ways. Why, why would we bother reading something written 500 years ago? What has it got to say to our lives today? Where does the homilies uh, hit the road for us?
1: Well, of course, Christian doctrine is um, unchanging. The gospel is unchanging. So much of the the homilies will still, as it expounds the Bible um, and good Christian doctrine that's always been held by Christians throughout the the ages, that will still be of enduring relevance to to us. But, I mean, there are some really quite um, surprisingly relevant parts of the homilies, I found. So there's a classic statement of Anglican sexual ethics Hmm. In the homily on adultery and sexual sin, um, wow, yeah, it's surprising to see. There's a whole sermon on that, which you wouldn't expect from then, because surely everyone agreed with a traditional view. back then, well, no, that's not true. It's always had to be taught.
0: And it's interesting, isn't it? Because there isn't really anything much about that in the Thirty Nine Articles. I can't remember if there's a, an article about adultery, mm. um, but the it's mm. you know you don't if that's if you only look at the Thirty Nine Articles. You don't get a real sense of that sort of sexual ethics being a thing that they were very concerned with, at least. Um, And so that there is a whole homily on this suggests that, in fact, we may have more in common with them than we sometimes think
1: yeah that's absolutely right the thirty nine articles do talk about the homilies as containing godly and wholesome doctrine most necessary for these times and if you want to find out what they thought was godly and wholesome and necessary for these times, go to the homilies mm. i mean the 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 homily on sexual sin you know it's um it's very clear and it's obviously an issue in those days i mean it says at one point um uh, sexual sin was so abundantly common and has grown to such a height that among many it is counted no sin at all. Wow. That's what they were saying in 1547.
0: I mean, you could um, definitely say that today, couldn't
1: you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so the homily goes through, what did Jesus say about this subject? What does Paul say? What does Peter say? What does the Bible teach us on sexual sin, adultery, faithfulness in marriage, uncleanness, as the word was then? And it, it laments the the disease, illegitimacy, the economic cost and the contention that arises because of sexual sin. Um, there's a great line where, where he says at one point... Um, how much is God's word regarded with contempt and distorted by sexual sin and those yeah. who are sexually immoral? That there's a, there's always been this temptation to twist God's word because of our sexual sin. We're all prone to do that, whether we're in the 16th century or in the 21st.
0: And it's interesting because you, you said we maybe think that people back then all sort of had the same understanding of sexual ethics and and it's interesting that actually even then people were trying to twist God's word as well as just ignore God's word but the homilies aren't just about informing you that this is what the Bible says are they they're they're proper sermons
1: oh yeah
0: they they want you to to change your life and and turn back to the Lord and and repent and um yeah there's a real sense you could preach these couldn't you
1: Oh they do preach they do preach. I mean some uh, listeners may remember that I actually did preach through the homilies um over lent and they really they, they preach very easily and you can see that. But they're not just trying to inform and educate or even to entertain. They they're trying to move your stomach. They're trying to turn your stomach against sin so that you detest and abhor and hate it from your very core and that you love the Lord Jesus mm. and um, adore him for all his beauty and glory. So it's a they're very warm-hearted, but also very clear and firm sorts of uh, sorts of yes. homilies.
0: One one other thing that that people uh, familiar with contemporary preaching might notice is he doesn't really begin with a joke, does he? He doesn't feel like he has to get your attention with a, a little hook at the start, little anecdote. There's it, just straight in there. Um, you would think, wouldn't you, uh, that if the the sort of Church of England's official teaching on on sexual ethics. Um, is contained largely within the homilies that as the Church of England begins to what say begins continues its process of uh, discussing the issues around sexuality at the moment in the living and love and faith process that, that perhaps they would have um, turned to the homilies uh, as a way of uh, you know as a sort of starting point if this is what we already think we should know that before we decide whether we want to make any changes to that Have, have they done that, Lee? Well,
1: um, there is a sort of passing glance at um, one or two of the homilies on marriage uh, in the second book of homilies and on scripture, I think it is. But there isn't there isn't even the slightest look at this homily in the first book of homilies on adultery and sexual sin and what the Bible says, what Jesus says about sexual sin. That's not in any of the footnotes that I've noticed in Living in Love and Faith. Um, if someone wants to check through them themselves and have another look, I don't think you'll find it, which is really disappointing because this should be a primary resource for all Anglican reflection and thinking about what is our tradition of, uh, of doctrine and of practice in, in every area, but particularly in this. Well, there's a whole there's a whole sermon on living in love and faith. I mean, on uh, sexuality. And we're not we're not looking at it.
0: Well, it might be interesting if perhaps if some of our listeners are engaging in the living and love faith process at the moment, if you're doing the course, if you're responding uh, to that online, maybe uh, that sermon in particular, that homily in particular, would be worth uh, looking at really carefully and, and using that as you think about how you respond to those materials. And that's not the only homily that seems to have a particularly contemporary application, is it? Tell us about the final homily in the book.
1: Yeah, the final one. I found strikingly relevant. It is the homily against Facebook and Twitter. Sorry, it's called the homily against contention and brawling, which laments the disunity at the church and the sort of impatient pride of Christians um, who, are, who are flicking through the Bible, looking for proof text to throw at each other. And so it says, um, let us read the scripture that by reading it, we may be made better livers rather than more contentious disputers. Mm. So we're not to just be experts in fighting and brawling. Um, otherwise, uh, without patience and meekness, we'll multiply words with our enemies and be yeah. made as evil as them. There's a great bit where it's quoting from, he um, looks at the example of Pericles, an and ancient Greek example of patience in the face of provocation. Uh, He says, Pericles was provoked to anger by many insulting words, but he answered not a word. And yet we, stirred by one little word, what tragedies do we claim? How we fume, rage, stamp and stare like madmen. Many people make a great matter out of every trifle, and with the spark of a little word, they kindle a great fire, taking everything in the worst possible way. When I first read that, I thought, my goodness, this is just, this is a word for Twitter for today. Um, Even Anglican Twitter, even Christian, even evangelical Twitter behaves like this a lot of the time. We fume and rage and stamp and stare and we make the worst construction out of uh, out of things that people say. Uh, friends, it should not be that way. And this homily on contention and brawling, I think it's interestingly placed straight after the homily on sexual sin. Um, it's yeah. really a word for us. So if, if you only read the last two homilies in this book, then it's worth the price of the book.
0: So, I mean, this all sounds really brilliant and very important. I... I'm not sure I've ever read through the homily. No, I have because I've read through the versions that you put on our website. That is true. Prior to that, I don't think I'd ever read through the homilies, and it does feel like they are often overlooked and ignored. With you know, more and more churches, I think are are bringing back a tradition of engaging with the Thirty Nine Articles um, and obviously the the Book of Common Prayer, but. Mm -hmm. And these homilies, I think, still by and large are are sort of left to one side. Why? Why is that? Why haven't we kept up this tradition of, of reading and engaging with them?
1: Yeah, and it is a great tradition amongst evangelicals, actually. So, in the 16th, 17th, and 18th centuries, even during the revival, people like George Whitfield, the great evangelist, the hymn writer Augustus Toplady, um, Fletcher of Maidley, um, Grimshaw of Howarth, all these great evangelicals were very keen on the homilies as well as the articles and the prayer but you know they would talk about how the homilies contained the doctrine that they were preaching um, and therefore they can't be attacked as being some sort of novel imposition on the church no the church mm. has always taught these things um yeah but it they've disappeared into the mists of time a bit and it's it's difficult to find a good edition of them and has been for some time there are some as i mentioned already some good critical editions some heavy um scholarly expensive books that you can buy but nothing that ordinary mortals like most of us would find easy to pick up and read and that's what I've tried to change with this edition really I've, I've gone back to that original hard to read stuff and laboriously modernized the the ancient typeface that was, I mean you can't even read the typeface of the original most people would struggle with that
0: have these not been able have you not been able to just sort of download these freely from the internet if people really wanted to do that and change the font
1: yeah, people, uh, well, there are a couple of places where you might find a, a, a sort of transcription of them, but right. that's with the old-fashioned spellings and okay. sometimes the old the old typography is retained in some of those online versions because they've just put it through an OCR machine, right? optical character recognition, and that hasn't done a perfect job. So nobody's done a sort of proper uh, line-by-line modernisation um, to make it, it? it easy. And I literally had the original text up on my screen in front of me, and I kind of typed away modernising it line by line to to make it make it more readable. Great. for people.
0: Great. Um, it sounds really wonderful. I I wonder is the thing. Um, might might it be a thing that you would commend to ministers to actually just preach these as sermons in their churches, or are we just saying probably their best use at this point is for us as individuals just to to buy the book and read it on our own. They are for
1: ignorant, uneducated ministers to to use, uh, to teach their congregations good stuff. So um, if you're an ignorant and uneducated minister, I guess you could still find them useful. <laughs> um, so, so buy them um, for, for that reason. Well, I wouldn't necessarily say that we would want to be doing this today, reading out somebody else's sermons um, in, in our churches on Sunday. Um, we could use parts of them. We could use the same subjects, take the same take these twelve um sermons and use that as a template for our own sermon series. They can teach us what Anglican doctrine is. I mean, all ministers are supposed to be bearing witness to Christian truth as we in the Church of England have received it, according to our declaration of assent. You know, this is where to proclaim afresh in our generation the faith that we've received in the Church of England's official formularies from the, the period of the um Reformation. So this is it this is what we are to proclaim afresh and having being able to read it in a modern edition with footnotes helping you if there are obscure and archaic phrases that should help us um preach with the same vigor and enthusiasm and clarity um as they did and i think you know they they talk about the homilies the um there's a preface by um uh, some of the ministers of Edward the Sixth, King Edward the Sixth, good old King Edward uh, from 1547, who says, "You know, we face the great decay of Christian religion and the utter destruction of innumerable souls through hypocrisy and harmful doctrine." That's what they faced in their day. And that's what we face in our day too. So returning to these homilies is invigorating. It is a useful thing for us to do. It it takes us back to the vital spark, the vivacity and the vigour of Anglicanism in its uh, foundational um, phase. Wonderful. And and will restore that to us today. I hope it will bring or will help us to bring about another Anglican Reformation.
0: Wow. Well, you heard it here first. Um, I mean, I think it's, it's worth remembering, isn't it? These, Although, obviously, they were for ministers. They were for ministers to preach to the people. So these are things effectively written for ordinary people in the pews, ordinary lay people. So this is not a, a sort of niche book that, that only your vicar will be interested in. It should be for all of us who are part of the Church of England to say, this is my faith. Um, so we would love uh, many of you to buy this and read it. And very excitingly, today we are also launching, uh, as well as the, the beginning of this uh, next season of the podcast, we are launching the new Church Society website. Um So you will find there uh, in the shop uh, three different editions of this Book of the Homilies. You can buy a beautiful hardback version mm-hmm that Lee is very proud of, and we're selling that for the bargain price of 15 pounds. You can, if you are a cheapskate or, you know, just just want (laughs) to test the waters before uh, going in for the full hardback uh, glory. There is a paperback version for 10 pounds. And for those of you who prefer uh, your books in um, uh, virtual format, there is also a digital Uh, download. Uh, If you're in the UK, the cheapest place to buy all of those things will be from our website. If you're overseas, you may well find uh, that the versions you can purchase through Amazon in your local Amazon uh, may well get to you quicker and may also be a bit cheaper because they will have less postage attached. Um, but we hope uh, that you will very much appreciate uh, all the work that Lee's put into this volume and that it will really uh, encourage you and strengthen you uh, in your faith as an Anglican believer in the 21st century. Thanks so much, Lee, for coming and telling us all about that. Uh, next, next week, I will be back again. Uh, I'm not going to be in every episode of the podcast this season and I'm quite excited about that. But next (laughs) week uh, I will be back again and I'm talking to Fiona Bronston and uh, Vicky Parsons. And we're going to be talking about an exciting new uh, venture uh, that is happening for women, uh, particularly for women who are complementarian in their theology and who are engaged in or maybe thinking about uh, ministry in the church of england uh, so do you join us for that this time next week thank you so much for listening to this episode of the church society podcast you can find the whole podcast archive on our website churchsociety.org don't forget to subscribe to us on your usual podcast app and we'd love it if you are able to leave a review or give us a rating over there as well Ba-doom-boom, ba-chick-a-doom-boom, chick doom boom -boom.